Have you ever struggled with making life-changing decisions or simply aligning your thoughts with your action? Well, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Trust Your Voice podcast. My name is Sylvie Legere, and as a civically engaged entrepreneur and a mom, I understand the challenges of advocating for yourself and others while really attempting to balance your personal and professional demands. I had to develop a personal system of success in every area of my life. And now I want to help you build your unique system and truly trust your voice, even if it shakes. By the end of each episode, I think you'll be energized to spark your creative leadership, make purposeful connections, and confidently prioritize the matters that really bring you most joy. So let's start the show. Welcome to the Trust Your Voice podcast. My guest today is Dr. Kim Kagan. Dr. Kagan is the founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, ISW. She is a military historian who has taught at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, at Yale, Georgetown, and also American University. She is also a published author frequently published in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, just to name a few. So I really invite our listeners to look at the show notes for Dr. Kagan's full bio and also the link to her website. I'm excited about our conversation today because we're going to divide into two parts. First, I want to talk about the Institute for the Study of War and Dr. Kagan, and I'm going to call it Kim, and how she built the organization and why. The second part is going to be about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Kim is going to share with us how to understand the military operations that are being deployed. So welcome to the podcast, Kim, Dr. Kagan. Welcome. Thank you so much, Sylvia. It's a great pleasure to join you today and a privilege to be on this wonderful podcast. Well, thank you. Well, Kim, you established the Institute for the Study of War, ISW, and The website is actually understandingwar.org in 2007. And the primary focus when you establish it has been to study military operations in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan. And then in December 2020, and then throughout 2021, you started reporting covering Russian military operations in Belarus and the buildup of forces on the Ukrainian border. And since February, your website has been incredible. ISW has been covering the military movements of Russia in real time. So share with us what is the focus and really the purpose of ISW. Thank you so much. The United States faces more threats today than it has since the end of the Cold War. And our dangerous world is changing very rapidly. The Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, is a nonpartisan policy research organization in Washington, D.C. ISW conducts independent, objective, and unclassified analysis of military conflicts around the world in order to help our civilian and our military leaders make informed strategic decisions about threats to the United States and to our allies. Our goal at ISW is to keep the United States free and prosperous by ensuring that reality drives strategy. We also select, develop, and educate the next generation of national security leaders to help ensure that the United States can meet the long-term challenges to its liberty and security. ISW's value proposition is independence and objectivity, or our search for truth. Finding truth is as much about asking the right questions 
as it is finding the right answers. Good leaders and good citizens seek truth, but it's hard to get truth because the world is just so complicated. Sometimes it's hard for leaders in government or in the military to think beyond their day-to-day challenges. And it's hard for citizens to understand the wars and military threats around the world. So ISW formulates different questions about the world, challenges assumptions that underpin U.S. strategy. ISW takes pains to understand and define national security problems correctly. We rigorously check the logic of U.S. strategy, and we forecast unlikely scenarios. For example, we forecasted the rise of ISIS months and months before it occurred. And then ISW uses all sorts of available information uh, from press, media, social media, and we rigorously check that information to answer those questions and describe what's happening in the world. For example, in the war in Ukraine. We publish our reports and our maps and the evidence behind them on our website. Okay. I mean, it's a, a really an ambitious goal and it's amazing the information that you put together. And you touched a little bit on this, but I'd love to unpack, like, who is your audience? Because you talked about military leaders, civic leaders. So are you talking primarily to our representative in Congress or news agencies or also general citizens? Like who, when you create your material, who do you have in mind in terms of audience? We have several audiences in mind. First, it is important to inform our senior most leaders in the executive branch, in the White House, in the Pentagon, and to make sure that they understand the complex world around them, sometimes in a way that's a little bit different from what they get from their own staffs, which, as I said, they're very busy. They have to think about the day-to-day. When I founded ISW, I thought that ISW would primarily reach civilian leaders, including those in the executive branch and members of Congress. And I thought that ISW could reach journalists through journalists, American citizens. What I didn't expect when I founded ISW is that the military would value ISW's work. I figured that the military already knew about military operations and particularly the military operations that it was engaged in inside Iraq. And of course they did, but they wanted different perspectives. And so when I founded ISW in 2007, I began writing some reports about what was transpiring in Iraq on the ground during the surge. And my first report had 25,000 readers. One of them was General Petraeus, and he invited me to Baghdad. And I went to Baghdad in May of 2007 and suddenly discovered an audience that I didn't think that ISW would reach, our uniformed military. And they were searching for truth, trying to get outside perspectives on what was transpiring in Iraq. They were really trying to make sure that they had competing ideas and assessments of the ground truth. And they wanted to educate American policymakers and the public about what was going on. And they didn't want to do it themselves necessarily through official channels. They wanted different perspectives of the truth actually to reach the American people. 
And so ISW found in 2007 this unexpected audience of the military, in addition to the civilian leaders in our U.S. government, and in addition to great Americans who care about the world. You've been in the trenches. You spent months, 17 months in Afghanistan. You, you were appointed on the Syria study group in late 2018 which I guess is a 12. I'm not sure if it still exists. Uh, does it still exist? Is... No, uh, no. We, we finished our mission and we finished it on time and Congress disbanded us. Disbanded it. But it was a 12-member bipartisan group that was mandated by Congress to make recommendations to military and diplomatic strategy of the U.S. with respect to Syria. So how did you decide to take the jump and start a 501c3, a nonprofit organization, a, a think tank with the focus ISW. Tell us about that moment that you said, okay, wait, I'm going to do this. So I'm going to start at a slightly earlier moment. On 9-11, I was a civilian professor at West Point, and I was in the classroom with my cadets who were freshmen at West Point. And I was in the classroom when the towers came down. And there were these incredible young men and women in front of me who were, of course, quite shaken about what had happened in the world, as we all were, uh, but who had also entered a military, signed up, volunteered for service in an environment that was very different from the one that we found after 9-11. They didn't know that they were going into wartime, were prepared, of course, for war because they swore to serve the Constitution of the United States and put on a uniform to defend our country. But it was a really tough time because these young men and women were going to be going, we didn't know where, on September 11th or September 12th. And ultimately, they came to serve in Iraq and Afghanistan and did truly amazing work. I was so excited on 9-12, to have a mission and a purpose as a civilian, to know that I was serving my country by teaching cadets. And it was absolutely wonderful. But over time, as my cadets went out into Iraq and Afghanistan, and we struggled, the United States struggled in its campaigns in both places, I realized I wanted to do something more than I was doing for the 80 cadets who came through my class in a year. I wanted to help civilian leaders understand military operations because I thought that they needed more education in order to formulate intelligent strategy, that they were not educated in military affairs in the way that they needed to be in order to evaluate commanders and evaluate our campaigns, uh, set our political objectives, evaluate our military strategies. And I thought, I have no history of military service in my family, not, not a real one, not a long tradition like some families have. I'm just interested in foreign affairs and I'm interested in military history. I have learned through my cadets and through my colleagues, how to talk about war like a professional military officer. What if I could teach that to civilians and they too could communicate with the military professionals in this way? That's what I wanted to do. 
And I couldn't do it at West Point. I tried for a while to do it inside of a university setting, but I couldn't find one that would house this project. And I became so passionate that this was the calling that I had and the purpose that I was to fulfill, that I left my academic jobs and with zero dollars and zero employees, founded the Institute for the Study of War to educate civilian leaders on military affairs. That's just an amazing story. And I have to say you're an amazing role model to also have the confidence to do that, right? To leave a comfortable position where you were surrounded by thought leaders in the field and to decide to branch out on your own. Where is your confidence rooted to to do something like that? So in some respects, I don't see myself as a confident person. I see myself as a determined person. I have goals and objectives that I have set and a mission and purpose that I want to achieve. And I derive energy from pursuing that mission. And I know that that is what I'm supposed to do. And so it carries me even through tough times and through failure. In some respects, it took confidence to leave my academic positions and to start ISW. But in other respects, it was failing to achieve my mission within an academic setting that gave me the freedom to recognize that if this was truly my purpose, I had to find it and pursue it in my own way. And so I like to tell many people, particularly the young people who work for me at ISW, you don't always have to be confident to take risks. You need to be determined to take risks. And if you take those risks, you will get off the comfortable path, but you'll find yourself on a pathway that you could never have imagined in your life. And now I see there are so many things that I did early in life that set me up for success in what I do. But if I had actually overthought and overworried about what I would achieve rather than why I wanted to achieve my mission, I probably wouldn't have had the courage to go on. So Yeah, that's been- right. I, I really appreciate this. Uh, you kind of put the right words and, and kind of my feeling. It's not about necessarily about confidence. Trusting your voices comes when you have determination, when you have set goals and, and you have confidence and belief in those goals. That is what you're meant to do. It's really in recent years in, in building the Posse Circle that I've learned to value and enjoy all of the relationships that build. And I think you, you echo that experience there in building ISW. So it's great to hear. If I may add just a, a few things about that. First of all, I meet the most incredible people uh, working with ISW, whether they're in government or in the military or whether they're the supporters of our organization. They have done so many things. I can learn from all of them. And taking a moment to learn from every person I meet is one of the most exciting things that I get to do. I love that about my job. And then the second thing is that I was very fortunate that in my travels around Iraq and Afghanistan, I got to meet some remarkable people, including General Jack Keane, the chairman of my board, General David Petraeus, who is on the board of directors at ISW, others, and was able to cultivate relationships with them, really by doing what I do, by analyzing the situation on the ground and building trust with them. You can't replace trust. 
Hi, this is Sylvie here. Are you ready to trust your voice? I've got something just for you. Get your copy of my newest book, Trust Your Voice. In the book, I give you big ideas and practical steps to gain confidence so you can take on new challenges in your life and trust your instincts and your own voice. You can find it on Amazon.com and you can reach out to me, Sylvie, at TrustYourVoicePodcast.com if you have any questions, feedbacks, thoughts about the book and the show. Now let's get back to the episode. So let's switch gear and talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is really the most important conflict that the world has faced in, in 80 years, and it's still, we're watching what's happening in complete disbelief. Share with us how ISW is reporting on the crisis, and where do you get your information? I had the chance of participating in one of your virtual programs, and it was really impressive how you create maps of movements of the Russian troops. So tell us about how you do the reporting, and where to get information. So at ISW, I have built a research team. And within this research team, I have Russia analysts and experts. And I want to give a shout out to Mason Clark, the Russia team lead, and George Barros, who does the mapping for us. Every day, George, Mason, Katya, Stepanenko, and the other team members actually collect information from all over Ukraine using press media, social media channels, and a variety of official reporting from the Ukrainian government. And there's just a ton of information out there in this world. The trick is actually sorting through it, separating out the signal from the noise, really focusing on what matters confirming it, and then pulling it into a synthetic picture of what's happening. And Mason, George, Katya, uh, and now Carolina spend their time putting together this picture, taking fact and removing fiction, uh, geolocating events on the ground. That is to say, putting them on a map and determining where they happen, creating sequences of events looking at satellite imagery of the conflict and bringing all of this into a picture. And daily, they produce an assessment of the Russian invasion campaign, and they produce maps what has transpired in order to communicate what's happening on the ground and to give that independent and objective and informed view of how the conflict transpires. I think that's really important because it's very hard to tell from news reporting how a conflict is going. Our reporters are doing a good job, but sometimes it takes them several days to report a story. Sometimes they go back in time and report on something that has already happened, but we read it at a later time and we lose the chronology and sequence of events or we read anecdotes, but we can't actually zoom up to the bigger picture. What we at ISW try to do is put together that cogent and coherent picture of the war that our commanders would want if they were getting briefed every day about what was happening inside of Ukraine, of how the Russian campaign was going. And that picture we make available to the general public. And we're so, so blessed to have 
so many news agencies picking up our maps. And if you've seen maps recently in places like the New York Times or The Economist on Fox News or on CNN, you've seen an ISW map. That's incredible because it's true. Like journalists on the ground, they tend to report what's happening right around them. They're building a story, an anecdote, the people, but they're not necessarily focused on actually the operations. And this takes me to, I know that ISW offers like a two-week course for college students, which is really interesting. And one of the courses in this is about the logic and the language of, of war. And we don't want to go through the whole course, but I was, it's interesting that ISW explains what is the language of war. Maybe you could share like three keys for the general public to understand, be able to go beyond the headlines and ask the hard questions, even of the media to report on, on this, uh, on a conflict like what's happening right now. Sylvie, thank you so much for asking this question because understanding that war has a language and has a logic. There are words that you need to use to describe what's happening in war and that they have precise meanings to the military is actually one of the things that I most want to teach civilians because it's the precision of language that the military has that allows it to achieve very tough objectives with very large organizations. And so being rigorous about this terminology is so very important. Here are three things that I think are important to know about war and its logic. First, war is an act of policy by other means, says the leading military thinker Karl von Clausewitz. His writings date uh, to the 19th century and to Prussia, but his book on war is an incredible philosophical and practical treatise and is valuable today. War is an act of policy by other means. Policy doesn't stop when war begins. Policy continues when war begins. And our senior policymakers have to set the objectives for our country and for a war. And then our military leaders have to set the military objectives and tasks that will achieve the political objectives that our leaders have set out. This is complicated. It's hard. And it creates a requirement to define a series of objectives throughout a war for our military leaders to define that series of objectives and figure out how to execute it. I can talk more about that, but the key thing is that we, as citizens, need to evaluate how a war is going based on whether the correct objectives have been set and whether the campaigns that are transpiring are actually achieving those objectives. So war is an act of policy. War is an act of policy. Yeah, I think that's a, and we lose sight of that as when you're like trapped into the military operations, a number of tanks and everything you forget. And I'm glad you're reminding us is that there is a political objective that the military operations is set to achieve. And that's what you kind of need to really understand. It's a key question to ask. So the, the chaotic and deadly U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan eroded American credibility. 
And also, I think before, right, in 2008, since 2008, we've slashed military spending by a third. We've withdrawn forces from Iraq very prematurely. America and the West resolved to really engage militarily is being weakened and has emboldened Putin, right? So how do you think this is going to end militarily, politically? Like, I'm watching the news and talking to people, and it's like, where are we going? Thank you, Sylvie. First, it's important to understand that Putin is as bad as his word. He has set out as his political objective the removal of the current government of Ukraine and the elimination of Ukraine's independence. And he tried to design his military objectives to change the regime of Ukraine and to remove what he falsely calls the Nazi government and the Nazi people of Ukraine in order to impose Russian will on what is actually an incredible, free, competent people. So Putin is not likely to define his objectives down. He's not likely to decide that it's okay for Ukraine to be independent or for the Zelensky government to remain in power. And so Putin has a say over how and when this war ends. And given the maximalist objectives he started with and his general ethos that weakness is lethal, he is likely to persist for a very long time in trying to find and pursue those objectives. Even though the Russian military is stalemated inside Ukraine because of the flaws of the Russian military, but also because of the incredible defense that the Ukrainian armed forces and the Ukrainian people have mounted against the Russians. What does that actually mean? Sadly, it likely means that the war in Ukraine is likely to be protracted, uh, that Putin is likely to persist, that the Russian forces will dig in and stay a while, that he will keep bombing civilian targets and trying to compel the surrender of the Ukrainian government and people. And he's not really interested in a peaceful settlement. He's interested in changing the nature of a free country. So we should be prepared for a long war. And we should also understand that In fact, Putin is talking about negotiations to end this war, but he's not acting to end this war. He has the power to do that. He can halt his advance and take his troops out of Ukraine. He's just saying things in order to have the world perceive that he's in a dialogue, when in fact he's doing things that are causing the conflict. This is a terrible thing to have to understand and to realize, but it's going to take the stamina of the Ukrainian people and the resolve of the United States, its European allies and free peoples around the world to maintain the defense of Ukraine, but also to maintain some of the principles that are at stake here. 
First, that a country is independent and cannot be absorbed by its neighbors by force. Secondly, that free people are free and have the opportunity to function in a free society. And thirdly, that we as the West, we as the United States, we as Europe, we as a set of allies actually have to protect one another in order to stop aggressive autocratic regimes from harming our freedoms, our liberties, and our economic prosperity. It's up to us. So we must stand with Ukraine. Another tough question, I guess. This is uh, standing with, retra- with re- Ukraine means means a lot. It means really engaging more, but also it's not the only threat that is happening right now around the world. And and I was just reading that China and Russia had issued a manifesto just last month, right, hailing the redistribution of power in the world and the transformation of the global governance and architecture and world order. So there are threats coming from multiple direction. The question is really for our citizens to know, like, what should we demand of our representatives in Congress? This is a responsibility in the decision-making that's not just happening in the White House. Congress has a role to play. What is that role and, and what should we be asking or of uh, our representative? Citizens should be asking representatives, does the United States continue to have the premier military in the world? What will it take for the United States to maintain the premier military in the world? Can the United States military actually perform the missions that it now faces? Does it have enough resources to do that? What about the challenges that it will face over the next five or 10 years? What is it that the U.S. military needs in order to retain its technological edge and its human edge? What Could the United States be doing for Ukraine that it is not now doing? How can the United States actually better defend itself in Europe? These are all important questions that citizens need to ask of their members of Congress and of one another, of leaders within the government, because we assume that the United States will always be strong and always be preeminent. And that is simply not the case. And if we don't start asking questions now, this terrible moment of threat that Putin has revealed through his unjustified naked act of aggression will actually encourage other autocrats to take military steps to secure their regimes, uh, to harm the United States, to reduce our liberties, and to change our economy, and all for their interests, rather than for the interests of the United States and free peoples around the world. Thank you for sharing that, because we forget what we can do and, and how we can interact with 
with our representative in Congress. And we're entering a, an election year where those are questions that we should ask of the candidates who are uh, seeking our support. So my last question in conclusion, you know, it's just so frustrating because we feel so powerless. People want to do something. I was just talking to a friend who was telling me that she hasn't talked to her family in a week. There's tanks that's uh, in the city of Mariupol. There's no communication. They are told they're going, the, the ruble is going to be the new currency. They're going to have to get Russian passports. They can't get out. You know, the U.S. will be welcoming 100,000 Ukrainians, mostly through reunification. What can we do here? What can we do? It, it's frustrating to feel powerless. So leave us on a positive note on, on what we could do in addition to of course, asking and interacting with our representative in Congress. There are many things that ordinary citizens can do to support Ukraine at this time. Let me give you a few examples. First, I would love to recommend an organization that I have long worked with called the Spirit of America. The Spirit of America is a wonderful nonprofit that helps our United States forces overseas and our allies actually accomplish their missions in difficult places around the world. They are working with the Ukrainian government and armed forces to get much needed non-lethal supplies into Ukraine. That means things like medicine, logistics, fuel, food. And so the Spirit of America is a wonderful organization. A second organization that is doing a tremendous amount is the Kiev School of Economics, which is the leading university inside of Ukraine. They are doing an incredible fundraising campaign, again, for non-lethal aid. And we have to remember that we, the United States and the West, and we humans are going to have a requirement and responsibility to help rebuild Ukraine. It was an incredible economy, an incredible society. But in the meantime, uh, the Kiev School of Economics is doing a lot of fundraising for essential supplies and services. There's a wonderful list that, Sylvie, you and your team at the Policy Circle have on your website of charitable organizations operating inside of Ukraine. Make a donation or volunteer your time. And of course, if you want to stay informed, come to understandingwar.org. That's right. Thank you. It was really an honor to have you on the Trust Your Voice podcast. You know, in my book, Trust Your Voice, I talk about stepping into new experiences, building a strong network. And I think you certainly have done that throughout your life. And so grateful that you started and are running the Institute for the Study of War. So I invite our listeners to visit understandingwar.org to go beyond the headlines and to follow the Russian military operations in the Ukraine. We are praying that this conflict will end and for the safety of uh, millions of people that had to leave Ukraine and invite everyone to welcome in our community Ukrainians who are taking refuge in the U.S. And I also invite you to review the Policy Circle Brief on the Russian-Ukraine crisis and, uh, and to host a conversation about it because you'll be surprised the number of people that are touched by this conflict on a personal and also on a professional in their business. So. We all need to stay engaged and, uh, and aware and uh, involved in this. So thank you, Kim. An honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Sylvie. A great pleasure to be with you. 
Thank you for joining me, Sylvie Legere, on my podcast, Trust Your Voice. I hope that this episode brought you a new way to think about your voice, how to trust it more, and how to use it for good in your life and in your community. If you like this podcast, be sure to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show in your favorite player.